Okay, so if you're listening to this episode, we want you to know that you can actually watch this episode where? on YouTube okay. for free and see our beautiful faces and so see what we're wearing. Enough, search for it, manenough.com. Yes, man or, enough. There's an uh, amazing channel with all our episodes are on mm-hmm. there. And we, you know, with all our guests and they're fun to watch. We're, we're, we're fun. We're okay. We're pretty entertaining. Well, and also good to see how, like, cause you dress pretty stellar. You always got a cool outfit on. You too. Nah, Look, nah, you're wearing I just a dress throw a shirt, shirt on top of a t-shirt. But um, yeah, join us. Coming up on Man Enough. Can therapy be weaponized? I used to think if I date a guy who is in therapy, then that's better, right? Than a guy who's never done therapy. It is. Right? But actually, it wasn't. In that case. Well, every time he came back from his therapy, like I could tell when he had had therapy because he was a dick. Being man enough, what does that mean? It's really manly to mess up, admit you're wrong, and then grow. I couldn't accept that I was evil, so maybe I'm broken, but those broken things could be corrected. Intimacy between a father and a son is me just wanting to, like, put my head in your lap. I love you, son. You haven't called me a benevolent sexist, but my experience is women are better. Even if it's a positive, it's still not equality. I don't blame men for that. I just blame the system. This is Man Enough. Hey, everyone. Before we jump in, I just want to warn you that today's episode contains content and stories that may be alarming to some listeners. So please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions. Thanks so much. Liz Plank. Hi. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Why are you so far away from me? Five feet apart. (laughs) Literally. That's a Justin movie. (laughs) Speaking of Justin. Yes. He's not here. He's not here. That's why we have this gaping hole between us. You know, oftentimes we miss Justin because we're all busy and sometimes he's doing things like making movies or acting and things of that nature. But he's specifically not here because we're in a funny time right now. Mm -hmm. A very important time. We're still in in a WGA strike, which is the Writers Guild, for those who may not know. And now we are in a SAG strike, Mm -hmm. which is the Actors Guild. And Justin, of course, is an actor. And he is standing, of course, with his um, companions and comrades and all his peers who are fighting for fair pay. Fair pay, yeah. There's a whole thing. We won't get into what the whole strike is about, but it has to do with being valued and being seen and actually um, reaping the benefits that the studios get to reap. Yeah. And Justin, of course, is um, supportive of it. So, um, But he's here in spirit. Yes. And um, so we'll channel some of his thoughts, maybe share some of those. And Mm -hmm. on behalf of Justin, um, welcome to Man Enough. (laughs) We're doing a throwback episode, aren't we? We are, um, because we have so many great episodes, so many great moments, so many great guests. So many. I mean, we're talking about mental health, which is a a topic that we obviously delve into a lot in this podcast. But um, I think there's different, there's a lot of conversation right now around therapy speak. Mm -hmm. Are we doing too much therapy? Can um, certain people weaponize therapy Mm -hmm. against other people, right? We were kind of in this moment of like, go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy. And I think that now there's some questions around, okay, well, going to therapy is great, but is it is is it always great or is it enough? The way that you do therapy is also important and particularly the way that men do therapy, mm-hmm. right? Because it's very different from the way that maybe women can do therapy. So it we're is. going kind of, we're going on a deep dive. You know, there is a lot of people, as you just mentioned, that are saying that therapy sometimes can be too much. Yeah. That's for the birds for me. Oh, really? What the hell does that even mean? That's yeah. like saying there are movements and you take one person that does something wrong. And then now it reflects the majority of people who are actually benefiting from a movement. Sure. 
you have therapy, which is benefiting humanity. You have one or two, you have 10 people, you have 5%, whatever it is, that abuse it. Mm -hmm. But that should not speak to the other 95%. But don't you think like Instagram values, like <laughs> like now if I open up my Instagram, it's like everyone's a mental health, you know, sort of expert or sure. pundit. Even we could come across that way, right? Because we talk a lot about mental health without necessarily having any degree or, or, or being licensed to do it. And I think that Yes, it's there's a positive to people being more in therapy and understanding, uh, you know, uh, psychology more. But it can like, mm. I think it turns people, it, it makes people overly confident mm. about their own uh, assessments of 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 their own mental health, and also a little bit arrogant when it comes to diagnosing other people. Don't sure. you think a little bit, right? Sure. And and that we can over. The thing I've I've even experienced in in my life, which you know, not not just being in therapy, but also reading a lot about it and being invested and and even being part of this podcast, is that I'm like, am I thinking too much about problems? Am I thinking too much about the things that I need to fix or things that other people need to fix? Overly invested in red flags, right? Yeah, right and right. looking out for instead of just kind of living my life. Yeah. You know? That to me is going too far on one side of the spectrum. Anything when it's not done in moderation can be helpful. Right. right. But overall, therapy, yes. dealing oh, with mental health, right. we all have it. I mean, I have children who every single day I talk to them about their life, what they felt that day, what needs to be worked through. They need to talk about things. Yeah. Then we get to an age of all of a sudden teenage and we stop talking as much. And then we get to be adults and we don't have someone to talk to. We do like surface, sure. but actually someone like when we had parents that helped us diagnose what we were feeling, mm -hmm. who is here for us to help us diagnose our mental health. So just because we've got a small group of people or however, whatever size the group is mm -hmm. that are abusing it and are way on one side of the spectrum doesn't negate the fact of how valuable it is for us to talk mm -hmm. and to unpack and uncover things that we're feeling that mm -hmm. we wouldn't otherwise do it. And with someone who's neutral, not just someone who's a yes man or a yes mm -hmm. person but rather someone who can help identify, Jamie, that you keep repeating these same patterns over and over again. We need opportunities to unpack. I don't mean someone like my brother who has Down syndrome, right. has a mental, issue, mental health issue, or my mother who has struggled with bipolar. I mean, our health, our actual well-being, mm -hmm. our mental health is constantly something that needs to be worked on. Yeah. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. But can therapy be weaponized? And and I think that it's an important conversation because I used to think if I date a guy who is in therapy, then that's better, right, than a guy who's never done therapy. It is. Right? But actually, it wasn't, right? In that there case. Certain, well, I dated someone who, I swear to God, every time he came back from his therapy, like I could tell when he had had therapy because he was a dick. <laughs> like he would just... Therapy is in, in your relationship, in your intimate relationship. I think that what we want is for it to make us more patient, for us to make us more empathetic, right? Not just to ourselves, but to the other person. And when he would come back from therapy, he would be more arrogant. He would be more entitled. He would use certain terms, right? And say, well, you're pushing my boundary. You have interrupted me or I'm, you know, I feel unsafe. And it was kind of these these very therapized terms, which, by the way, like, I think most therapists don't even use those terms. Like, I don't even think my therapist has ever used the word boundaries or. And here's my theory about that. 
So, so I'm, I'm not saying uh, men who do this are sociopaths, but sociopaths, the best definition I've ever saw of what is a sociopath is someone who has very high cognitive emotional intelligence, but has very low felt emotional feelings, basically. So it's someone who doesn't really feel emotions, but understands emotions. And the reason why, right, like it's not just someone who I don't I don't feel anything and I'm just kind of callous or I'm just kind of selfish. This is a different kind of of person that we're dealing with. And, And I wonder, you know, in a society where men are told not to feel emotions, right? As boys, you're told to repress it. You don't even, you know, a lot of men don't know what they're feeling and they're taught to completely separate from those feelings. If they're taught the intellectual language around uh, emotions, right? Mm -hmm. They go to therapy and they're taught about all these concepts. Does it create a kind of, not sociopathic, but, but a dangerous kind of behavior for some men who enter therapy with the intellectual understanding of emotions, but not the felt understanding of emotions. I think that's what we're seeing play out in certain relationships mm. where these men will be able to speak about emotions at a at a really high level and use terms like boundaries and use terms like, you know, feeling emotionally safe or gaslighting, right? But they're actually weaponizing those terms because they're not actually feeling those emotions. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And <clears throat> And I hear you. <laughs> I still just think we are taking the few with a loud microphone versus the majority. I would talk. But a lot of women have, will say they've been in relationships with guys like this. I mean, Sure. But if you told me you have 10 men, and do I think that the 10 men benefit from having therapy versus not? 100%. Even if you take, because what you're describing right now about sociopaths, of course, a sociopath is a sociopath, whether they have therapy or not. Well, I'm, about your, and I'm not saying these these guys are sociopaths, by the by, by yeah. the way. I, I just think the 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 true definition of 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 a sociopath was interesting to me because I would have just thought it's someone who literally has no empathy, someone who doesn't care, yeah, someone. Yeah, sure. who's, but it's it's actually not that. And so I'm wondering if we're kind of producing a generation, right, of 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 men who are very um, intellectually able to understand emotion, but don't feel them. And and it's not their fault that they don't feel them. They grew up in a in a patriarchal system yeah. that told them that they that they don't have feelings and that sure. there's something wrong if you have feelings. And so I'm yeah I'm just wondering if some of the you know and and I think different modalities have been really helpful to those men right like cold plunges and uh, breath work right things that maybe work you know have make you feel something on on a on a physical level rather than just kind of like an intellectual sure. level. Yeah, if you're talking about identifying what the right kind of therapy is for each individual. Yeah. You know, um, and if you're having a therapist that you're now are becoming a worse of a human then get a new therapist. Yeah. Um talk to someone else that's new. I think that any conversation I have friends that come to me and we sit around at the house and have a couch and I would say at the end of the our conversation, that was a therapy conversation, right? Yes. That was someone that they wanted to talk something out with. Right. Um, hear a perspective, mirror back to them some of what they're feeling and maybe offer some guidance that mm-hmm. might lead them to a different decision. I don't know how that's ever harmful. Now, if people are weaponizing it, mm-hmm. people weaponize love. We're not trying to yeah. tell people not to love people. Sure. Right? You can have anyone that weaponizes anything. Uh-huh. But I think overall, for us to think that talking through our feelings, our emotions, unpacking trauma, whether it's when we were a child, a relationship that we never really talked about. So now we're in another relationship repeating the same behavior, um, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. The amount of people that are doing it to weaponize does not equate to the amount of good that it's doing. Because I do think humanity is evolving. I do think men are evolving. Yes. 
And I think we are evolving because we are, are in fact becoming more in touch with our feminine side, because we are talking about things with other people, because we're not just brute men that sit there and I'm a, this, 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 and this, but rather we, we talk things out yeah. more so than we used to. Sure, that comes with a lot of other stuff that we have to unpack. Mm -hmm. Sure, there are a lot of people that offer types of therapy that are not uh, conducive to the betterment of humanity. Mm -hmm. But overall, as a general rule, for men, for all people, but specifically talking about men, to have some sort of barometer so that our mental health can be better is better for our families, right. better for ourselves. And, and equipping, I think, people with the knowledge that just because someone goes to therapy, it doesn't mean that they, you know, that 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 they're not going to be um, ab uh, abusive or neglectful, right? Right. Sure. Like that going to therapy doesn't mean you. that they're fixed, right? Sure. Or, or and again, fixed is a totally. Mm. But but like I think about this all the time. There's a tweet, like a therapist just told the worst person that you've ever met that they're enough. <laughs> like, like a therapist just told the most abusive person in your life that they're enough. Right. Right. That, that, that person being in therapy doesn't mean that, yeah, you stay in that relationship because that relationship will be solved. And, and, um, couples therapy can actually be kind of dangerous to go into if you are in a, in 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 one of those relationships, right? We're talking about abusive relationships, right? Whether sure. it's if I say the word abusive relationship, you probably think of domestic abuse and like physical violence, but before there's physical violence, there's em, 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 emotional violence, sure, and course. that's what lays the groundwork yeah. for people to accept something as awful as as physical violence and coercive control, and so coercive control can look a lot like. You're not allowed to do this or else I leave. You're not allowed to talk to other men. Uh, and I've been in relationships like that, yeah. you know, and and you again, you say, oh, he really loves me. Oh, he must really care about me. Um, or there's something wrong with me because the way that he's explaining it makes so much sense. Like that's a boundary for him. But is it a boundary for him or is it control for him? Sure. I mean, that is indeed a fair point. Mm -hmm. And um, we can we can be terrible lower nature people that yeah. abuse things yeah um and but, i've done it i mean do you feel like you've ever i feel like there i've probably weaponized, weaponized things yeah like I, I mean i think we all weaponize stuff Liz, sure. right and I, as i come up the ranks in the job then you have new information to use that against someone else because you're more learned and you more have this yeah. and you weaponize that possibly hopefully you don't sure. you stay humble and all of that but we can all do that. You can mm -hmm. do that as a parent. You can as a, I've been married three times. Do I weaponize the fact that I've been married before and I use that as some leverage as if I know more about marriage uh -huh. than my wife who's married for the first time? I hope I don't, but I'm sure I have. Sure. I think we all can do that. Yes, we all do. Um, I know I've done it. It may, I think I, I became really arrogant at knowing what people's things are. Right. Mm. I'd, again, I'd go on all a right. date or I'd be uh, yeah. even with friends. I'd be like, oh, she's, you know. Um, codependent and has uh, heavy, like I, I would just right, almost, that's called judgmental. It, it yes, yes, that not that's staying right. in your lane. And you think that you're being compassionate, or again, you just think that you know better. Yeah, but it's yeah, you're you're being judgmental. Well, in this particular episode, we are highlighting those individuals who I believe have benefited from the act of yes. some sort of therapy and benefit others and benefit others. Yes. right. So I would leave us with when it comes to. Uh, feeling safe with having emotion and sharing it with another and saying that there's stuff about me that can be um, refined. I can be a better husband. I can be a better friend. I can just be a better human. Um, I have to do it by myself. I don't need to ask for directions. I can get there on my own.
And, and when you see men and young boys who are able to talk to another with an open heart and open mind and reflect um, for the purpose of just trying to be better mm-hmm. in your world, I think that's always good. Yeah. Even against yeah. the few people who weaponize it. Yes. And when I say few, I know it's a lot. And I'm sure that every woman has experienced something with a man that's done that. Mm-hmm. But I still think the majority of men that are in your life mm-hmm. that have some self-awareness are better for it. Yeah. And we oftentimes we don't have self-awareness unless we have a mirror. Uh-huh. And... Exactly. To your point, it's also women's role to leave those relationships when they are unhappy, when it doesn't feel good or when these patterns occur. Right. I think that, again, being overly analytical about our our mental health and the mental health of the people around us, uh, women do that a lot. Here's your problem. Fix yeah, right, it. Right. I'll I'll control it. Um, I'll I'll come up with all these different you know things for you to do and um, and expectations that you won't yeah. you know meet or maybe that you don't want to meet. And I think um, that's a really important part of this too, right? Like women, not just again being armchair you know uh, yeah. psychologists and and saying this is what's wrong with men. Now go fix it. But saying, well, this is not, relationship isn't working for me. Mm. Um, and it, and it's your your job to to leave that relationship too. Yeah. Agreed. So should we jump in? Let's go. A Man Enough remix. Man Enough remix. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. You're going to see some clips and we'll see you soon. All right. Welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. This was one of my all-time favorite episodes with yeah. John Kim and Vanessa Bennett mm. about relationships. And Andy was guest hosting. Andy was guest hosting. So fun. I know. Um, it was wonderful. Really fun and really incisive. And what they shared really stuck with me because I I felt like it was a really well-balanced episode, right? Because typically we have a woman or a man uh, or a gender non-binary person, but here we had a, a man and a woman, you know, who are both uh, mental health, you know, mental health professionals um, offering very different perspectives. And mm. it was super um, compassionate Pers- and respectful. And, and loving. Yeah, and, we yeah. went deep and we like, did. yeah. Well, let's show a clip. We have John Kim and Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Andy Grammer slash Justin Baldoni. <laughs> you are filling in. You guys do a lot of couples therapy? Yeah. Yes. Mm. From the male perspective, mm. what are the trends that guys are working on? Great right question. Mm. Um, I think uh, men sometimes um, go to therapy not for them, but because they have to or something's mm-hmm. at stake. That's and right. That never works, right? That's yeah. um, or they're doing it as a favor to mm-hmm. their partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when they're in the room, uh, they will try to manipulate the therapist to get him or her on his side. Mm-hmm. You, know you find that's more than the women. Yeah, because I think I, mean, I would agree. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a generalization, but I, I I do agree because we still don't have buy-in from men embracing being proud of. I don't know if the word's proud, but like, hey, therapy is something like in the locker room, championing it, championing it in yeah, the locker yeah. room. Yeah. You know, after you know doing How some clean injuries, session? right? <laughs> no, you don't see guys chest yeah. bumping it's each other. It's starting to like, generationally, hey. like the younger generation, but definitely to your point, it's not like mainstream. Yeah, we're yet. not we're not there yet. So in couples, usually they're there because. Um, they have to be or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like she's giving them an ultimatum. Yeah. I get that a lot. Tough People reaching out. It's interesting because I have one foot into um, become you know because of therapist and my character arc, and um, I love sensitive men. I love men who are vulnerable, and then I have my other foot in motorcycles, CrossFit, in the locker room. Mm, so yeah. I, I know those dudes too, right. right? And these it's a little oil and water, but whenever we talk about what men aren't doing, 
there's a protective side of me that wants to stick up for these men mm. because tell us I, I just because I feel like there's a lot of men right now who are um, trying, but maybe they're not going to therapy, but they are uh, scared or they're dealing with things and they don't have uh, the practice or the tracks to express themselves. Those muscles are weak. Maybe they were raised by an iron fist or whatever. And so it's easy to point fingers and say, well, you're not vulnerable. You don't go to therapy, you, you know, whatever. Um, but I think it could be a blanket statement. I just want to be careful because the world that we live in today, it's so like this or that, right? It's yeah. so the, the cancel culture thing, you know? Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. So we I had know. a thought yeah. on one of the earlier podcasts that. that has stayed with me, which is that I just think I have immense faith in men. So do I. Yeah. Like immense. Yeah. I'm a man. I feel cool. (laughs) I know what I'm capable of. (laughs) And even if we're Mm -hmm. lacking in a certain area right now, Mm -hmm. in many areas, the current world, men are, I think, uh, underperforming in many areas. But that doesn't mean that we can't get better at it and do it better. Mm -hmm. And this is a a situation that that we're in. You know, we had somebody on that was talking about how um, if you look at like college enrollment and you look at valedictorians, that men are like dragging in a lot of areas. And I just think that the way that men respond over a long period of time, I'm very excited for what the mm-hmm. new man mm-hmm. that responds to this difficulty mm-hmm. becomes. Yeah. And I would second what you're saying, which is I, I know a lot of men that are really trying and I love yeah. these men. Yeah. I, th- I think all men right now need a hand, not a finger. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and so yeah, agreed. I and love that. you're doing little, you're doing that yeah. in terms of changing the way that you approach therapy, right? And men, in my book, I talk about how like it could be therapy packs, right? Like almost right. like mm-hmm. a workout pack because mm-hmm. a lot of men don't want to go into therapy because they they think I'm going to be there forever. Whereas if you're like, okay, here's a ten pack on body image. Mm. And we're going to, you know, talk about body image. It's going to cost you this amount of money mm-hmm. and it'll be over after 10. And and again, side to side therapy. And anyway, you you roll up with a motorcycle yeah. to some of these therapy sessions. I wonder if you can talk about how yeah. differently we can approach therapy um, for men. My whole yeah. story started with the divorce. You know, I was 35, broke, uh, divorce, had nothing. And in therapy school, it was, um, first of all, no minorities, no men, mostly uh, middle-aged women and me. And I felt very alone. And then when I became a therapist, you know, I thought the dream was to kind of be like Dr. Drew, right? The wrinkle-free pants and the coffee and the nondescript <laughs> office, the silver balls. And uh, I mean, I don't know. He does a lot more than that. But um, I grew up listening to Love Lion. That was always. And then when I started doing that, I was like, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. I don't want to be here. I want T-shirt jeans. And so um, I called myself a coach because I started doing things yeah. that therapists weren't supposed to do. I started on Tumblr blogging. I called myself being a therapist because I was angry because I was miserable. And I said, hey, meet me at the park. Yeah. Um, there was a lake in Silver Lake here in Los Angeles, and it's 50 minutes exactly. I said, meet me at the lake. And so I started making house calls. I started driving my house. And uh, I noticed that people loved it. And, and the lake thing, they were like, wow, you're going to just sit and we're going to walk and talk? This is so weird. And I was like, yeah. And it's like casual over clinical works. And you know what? Uh, and then social media started uh, growing. And I was like, people are more interested in who you are instead of the letters after your name. That's right. And that's when I was like, you know what? When I'm um, doing the clinical stuff the way that you should do what I was taught in therapy school, I felt like uh, Clark Kent pushing a mail cart. And then when I started to do these other things like social media, I mean, at the coffee shop and I'll, I'll roll up, you know, on my bike, um, I felt like I had a cape. And so I just started listening to that. And I was still broke. And I still listened to that, listening to that. And then what evolved was um, 
you know, the stuff that I'm doing now. So it, it was, um, wow. yeah, it was really good. So that's the way, one of the ways you are actually reaching men maybe in a different way than another because of that. Yeah, yeah, because I don't think men will meet you in the therapy room. Or, or not I mean, always. not, not I always. Yeah, yeah. but they'll meet you at the CrossFit box. Or, or you know, they'll do. If I said, Jamie, let's go for a walk 100%. around the lake yeah. and just shoot the shit, that may be more attractive than uh, meet me in Suite 212. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Like you said, Make sure I validate your parking. And then, you know. That the, makes so much sense. I've yeah. done that myself because I've been very vocal about my life um, and screwing up and yeah. how I had to put myself back together and the, the work that I had done. I can't list how many people have reached out to me. To say, oh, can we talk about some stuff I'm going through? Sure. Mm-hmm. You had said you went through it. And we end up just going to coffee, come to the house, go swimming, do whatever it is. And we're having, I'm no therapist, but we're having conversations and they are getting some sort of therapy you're, you're that no they th- wouldn't have had. Right. Yeah. You're not otherwise. a therapist, but that process is very therapeutic. therapeutic. Exactly right. Yeah. And they wouldn't have come and actually seen somebody. I think it's important to um, have conversations in logger rooms, You know, be the Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. And when you're riding with your motorcycle friends, Hey, you know, um, what's going on as in like what's coming up for you or uh, things that How's are kind of deeper. How's your relationship yeah. with yourself? Yeah. They'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Well, I just noticed, man, you seem kind of down today, which, what, you know, whatever. Like the, mm-hmm. if, we, if we can start having those conversations, um, then we'll start to put the chips on that. And then it, you know, I think it's going to be, you know, over time, but I think it's going to um, take men and you're right, make, make men accountable. Um, that if you're there and if you've gone through some kind of hero's journey, then you need to lead by example. So if you've gone somewhere and come back and you have some revelations, don't keep that inside. Share it with your friends, you know. Who do we got next, Liz? Kier Gaines. Whoa. Talking about how therapy can be this space that's not super accessible to men. It, mm. it can be a very feminized space. A lot of therapists are women. There's the Kleenex box and mm. little couch and he talked about how he sort of overcame that environmental obstacle and and created more of a gender neutral, maybe even more masculine kind of therapy for men. His whole heart is in it. His whole heart. Well, let's share a little bit about Kier. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Kier Gaines. You decided to become a therapist. Yeah. Why? Hmm. (sighs) Honest truth, man, I've always enjoyed helping people. I used to work in apartment leasing. I lived in DC and I was a leasing manager. So I would lease crazy expensive apartments to people. Like that was my job. And I got fired one day because <laughs> I, I didn't care anymore. And it was obvious. And that's it. That's my last job I ever had when I don't help somebody. And after that, I became a personal trainer and I started working in education and I started working in the community, helping people get jobs. And I loved the way that that felt. It felt mm. like I was a part of something that was bigger than me. And I've always been really good at connecting with people. And this wasn't my idea. I worked in a school and a whole team of psychologists, all of them black women. And they used to take these kids who had all of these barriers to education and give them this clinical support. And I saw the change in those kids. Mm. It's like, what do y'all do? And I sat with them and I learned from them. And when you're a therapist and you love the craft, dude, Mm. it's, it's this vibe that you have. It's this vibe. And I caught the bug and I found a program that gave me a hundred percent free ride. Wow. Yeah, I didn't pay for my master's. But had at you all. had you ever been to therapy before you became a therapist? Never. Nah, 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 oh. nah, nah, nah. Mm. Never been to therapy. Uh one of the therapists, I asked her, I was like, hey, do you go to therapy? And she was like, Well, does a barber have a barber? And I was like, huh. <laughs> well said. Uh, I never did therapy before. So just seeing how it helped people had already been in my wheelhouse. 
it seemed like something I could do for the rest of my life. And even if I didn't make that much money, I'd be happy. Mm. Uh, those things pushed me to the field. And mm. I didn't see anybody who looked like me doing it. Beautiful. Yeah. So how important is, in your opinion, mental health going to therapy for men? Critical, 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 critical. Um, my, my therapist is more like a co-pilot. And my therapist is actually a black man. And I run a lot of things by him that don't make sense to me. And he doesn't change my idea. Me as a therapist, he does the same thing that I do. I don't tell people what to do. I don't even really give you advice. It I just help questions. you reframe. Yeah, I help you reframe. What, what your thoughts are, I hope you look at them in a way that's more conducive to the way that you move about life. Mm. And um, once I started... Once the threat of therapy went away and it's not like I can't just do this by myself, it's not that. Like if I ran into a million dollars tomorrow, I'll get an accountant. If I ran into some legal trouble tomorrow, I'd probably get a lawyer. <laughs> you you know, if I got gravely ill, I'd likely get a specialist in whatever is, is ailing me in the moment. Uh, a therapist is the same way. I can't figure everything out. I can't be omnipresent. I can't always see everything. And my therapist helps me with that. Or sometimes I see I see ghosts all the time. I see things that don't exist. I walk into the room, man, these people don't respect me. Of course they do. Why do you think that? I, I don't know. I don't know why I think that. Then let's explore that. Where does that thought come from? And then he helps me connect the stuff that I didn't even think was related. Um, so all those together made it more of a personalized experience to me and not just an occurrence, like going to the doctor, answer these questions, pass you something. That's it. It's it's more of a personalized experience, and it feels like I have an advisor. Why do you think we as men are so reluctant to see therapy as an advisor or a co-pilot? What and how do we change? How, how do we push through the barrier? Like what? So maybe what maybe what I'm asking for is if if there's a man listening, what do you want to tell the man who maybe hasn't gone to therapy yet? Of why? why it could be actually a beautiful thing for him, why he's not broken. The fear, you're not broken. You're not broken. You're always whole, no matter what happens to you in life. You're, all, you're always a whole person. You may have broken pieces on the inside, hmm. but you're always a whole person. And I try to remind men that. It's, again, it comes down to fear. It's the fear of the unknown. Therapy is also a lot of work. And it's a lot of opening doors that your mind has purposely kept shut. I don't want to know what's in that closet. Might be a mess, might be pristine. I don't want to know. That door's closed for a reason. I don't want to open it. And it's the fear if when I open it, what's going to fall out of there? Mm -hmm. What am I going to have to change that I'm not comfortable with? And I feel like it's representation. The only therapist I've really seen was what, Fraser Crane? <laughs> I wouldn't want Fraser Crane to be my therapist. No. He looked too stiff for me, you know? Right. Where's the representation that shows you that therapy is dope? When I walk in the therapist's office and it smells like sandalwood and my therapist looks like Justin and he greets me like, hey, what's up, man? And it's it's this non-formalized process. Uh, I think mm. all those things have traditionally scared men. Also, a lot of the language in this world isn't very masculine. I've never said disturb my peace. I don't use those words. I don't yeah. say uh, acknowledging my presence or, or like those 
those buzzwords that have become popular in the counseling space don't really apply to the men that I know. We don't talk like that. Mm. So it's also about where's the fit? I work on social media. All the little icons, they they all look very feminine because that's a woman-dominated industry. It's hard for me to find a gift that looks masculine. So when when something has been one thing for a very long time and then it gets introduced to another group of people, sometimes the nomenclature doesn't fit. The language doesn't fit. It's not built for them yet. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. Karin Brar. Karin Brar. Really, one of our early guests, um, and but one of our most really impactful interviews, he talks about losing uh, his best friend yeah. uh, really young and the process of grief as, as a man and how different that was. And showing a young brother talk about his pain. Growing up in an Indian American household, there is this... Uh, there is no belief in mental health. Mm. Um, not that my parents imposed that on me um, mm. or they were like, oh, hey, Karin, uh, good morning. Remember, mental illness isn't a real thing. <laughs> 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 they, they weren't like that. Uh, they, it was more so um, just subliminal messages mm-hmm. that I picked up. And, and also, like, you know, I could watch, like, an antidepressant ad that, like, came on and I'd be like, oh, that's just extra sadness. Like, that's what I just, you know, grew up around. Um, and so as I got older, um, my friends held me with like the gentlest of hands and with their love and support, they were like, Hey, we think it's time that you get some extra help. Oh, like wow. you get the support so that and came, help that came externally. It came from your friends. Yeah. It came from my friends. Oh. Um, which is just such a challenging conversation to like, I applaud them for how they handled those conversations because, your initial reaction is, oh, fuck, I'm broken. Like, there's something wrong with me. Like, there's, like, my friends don't want to deal with me. Like, now I have to pay a shrink to deal with me. Like, mm. that's, that sucks. Um, and how they handle that conversation, I was able to go, I know, I hear you, I'm just not there yet. Mm. Um, and then at the age of 18, I, I started seeing a therapist a little bit. And then, oh wait, I, so this was before Cameron passed. Yeah, this was before Cameron mm. passed. So you're just in, you're in high school on the set. You guys are working, and was Cameron one of those people? Yeah, Cameron was one of those people that mm. supported me to to get some extra help. And my my best friends, I've known for a very long time, anywhere from like six plus years, and I started experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety at thirteen. Um, and at first, mm-hmm. I kept pushing off getting help because I was like, oh, this is situational. Like, this What is- were some of those yeah, symptoms? Yeah. What was going on? Um, anywhere from just like feeling like there was no point in life to the other extreme, which is everything had so much importance mm. that if I, if I fucked it up, I like... I would want, like, I would literally want to kill myself. (laughs) Um, And that, and it didn't start off that way. It it was like just this, it, it progressed. It, it came in waves. And at 13, I was like, oh, this is, this is situational from the research I've done. Like I'll get through this. And then it kept persisting and persisting. And my friends were very like supportive. And then it, it reached a point where they were like, I, you know, this has been going on for some time. Like, do do we want to consider getting some extra help? 
And like I said, 18, I, I took that step. And at 19, I made the jump to move out with Cameron and Sophie because I also needed that distance from my home life mm -hmm. to really put some pieces together and, and, and figure out what I was feeling and what I was going through. Mm -hmm. um, and ever since then, I, I've been uh, consistent with therapy because I realized that's, that's what I need. And um, my, uh, my, my Cameron and Sophie were so supportive because I decided at one point I was like, I think I need medication. Mm -hmm. And that was a really scary thing because as an actor, you selfishly go like, will I be able to act anymore? Yeah, <laughs> like, I'll lose my edge. I don't want to numb yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to numb it. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, like you said, I don't want to numb myself. Um, and I, I took that step and medication was for me and medication um, contributed to, to saving my life. Mm. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. I think what a lot of people don't understand is about medication. Again, depend if you find the right one with the right, you know, help, is that it actually helps you find yourself, not lose yourself. Like a yeah. lot of like I had the same inclination of like, I'm just not gonna have my edge. I'm not gonna be as successful. I'm not gonna be as fun as like weird. And I was like, oh no no, like it helps you actually. Oh, you're just come as back weird. To Thank you. <laughs> yes, and just as Thank fun. You. Yeah. I'm under medicated right now. But, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, but I'm curious how they approached that conversation with you, because a few times you said that they did it in a really helpful, productive way. And I know I've struggled with that with my friends of like and especially guy friends of like, how do you bring that up? Yeah. So how did they do it? And what's your advice for people who are listening who you mm -hmm. know may want to intervene with their friends? It's a great question. Making it as honest as possible while also being as compassionate as possible mm -hmm. um, and recognizing someone's hurt and someone's pain and trying to explain like i'm just trying to lead you to water mm. i'm not trying to abandon you i'm just mm. trying to help you get to water mm. um and that's what helped a lot is because i always had the security that i i had this deep fear in a lot of my relationships and i that everyone would leave me so i always kept one foot out the door um, mm. and I was like, I'm like, my friends were always afraid that Okarin's going to run off to New York. He's going to do that one day. <laughs> like, he's just, oh. he's, he, um, and they, I think they were always a little bit on edge about that. Um, but they would always reassure me that like, we are not going anywhere. Mm. Like, we're not trying to abandon you. We're not trying to dump you onto someone else. We're, and you are not a burden to us. Mm. Um, you're just someone we love and we just want to see you take better care of yourself. Mm. Hmm. And, and from losing Cameron, the one thing I've made it a point uh, for myself to, uh, a point I've made is I'm going to do the best job that I can taking care of myself because he, Sophie, my friend Sarah, Zoe, and Nolan have spent so much time taking care of me. And mm. I was like, I'm ready to take care of myself. Um, and, and I've been focused on that ever since. So this next clip is about, is, is Justin speaking. Yeah. This is a brother who dives deep into his mental health. Justin Baldoni. You know, I spent 35 years not looking at the root cause of all of my anxiety even recognizing I had anxiety, um, not being willing to look at my trauma, 
And while I was going deep and doing a version of work on myself, it was surface. I, I feel like it was ultimately very surface level. And, you know, I'm, as I'm married, I pray I'm married once. I have two amazing kids. And there's something that happened to me when I became a father where I realized the stakes were just higher. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately there's a lot of different ways to get to the same path. You blew up your life, right? You had all this trauma that had happened to you and you had to blow up your life in order to find your way down that path. Now, could you have found your way another way? Of course, but that was your unique path. I recognize that there were parts of me that were unsettled, unhealed addictions that I was recognizing that I didn't feel like I had any power over. Um, I was losing myself in work and I wasn't ultimately happy. I was doing all of these things, but I was, I kind of woke up one day and I said, what, what is my life? What is this thing that I've built? It, it almost feels like I at one point woke up and I had built what would look like a dream life. Mm -hmm. I had constructed this thing from the outside in and I felt like a prisoner. It was almost like I built my hamster wheel and then couldn't get off. And in order for me to find joy, in order for me to be grateful for what I have in order for me to show up and be a good husband and not just like a surface good husband that like does the dishes or the laundry, but like an attentive, compassionate, respectful, caring, like empathetic husband, somebody that can hold my wife to be able to do that for my kids and to break the cycle of um, whatever my parents unknowingly passed down to me. I had to, go deeper than I ever have before and go darker than I ever have before and go into, as I kind of say in my book, that like the dimly lit basement of my heart and my psyche to understand what was lying at the bottom of that ocean, what was lying at the bottom of that river. And I looked for a lot of different ways. And one of the things for me that I had noticed was over the course of my life, I was developing a lot of injuries. You joke and make fun of me all the time. I was the most fit person who would get hurt the easiest you're in your 50s and we'd go play a sport and I would get hurt and not you. But that wasn't just physiological. That was because I, for my entire life, had, had been carrying lots of weight in my body, lots of trauma, lots of things that had happened to me that I didn't even realize, other people's pain. I mean, I'll share, I'll share one thing that, that was just uh, something that I realized, I think, uh, within the last six months. Over the last eight or nine years, I had developed a health anxiety, almost, mm -hmm. almost like a hypochondriac to the point where I would get a headache and I would wonder if it was brain cancer. It, was, it would be a thought that entered my mind. It, it would be quick sometimes, but it would just be like, oh, could that be? I'd get a stomach ache or something would happen and I would think it was something else. I'd have a, I'd have a disc bulge in my back and I'd wonder, is that, could that be, could that be cancer? I was developing this health anxiety. And the deeper that I dug into my somatic healing work, um, prayer, um, therapy, energy work, I realized that that anxiety wasn't actually mine. I'd spent 10 years making documentaries about people who were dying of terminal illnesses. And over the course of those 10 years, I became very close with a lot of those people. They became 
little brothers and little sisters and friends to me. And I lost a lot of them. I made movies about them. Clouds, five feet apart. And there were stories of fathers who had two children who ended up with brain cancer and the wives lost their spouse and then had to remarry. And I was suddenly realizing that all my anxiety was actually connected to these people, these friends of mine, because I had told their stories. I'd taken on their energy. I had been there for them. I had taken on the, this burden, this bounty of saying, hey, let me be of service to you in your final days and let me get your, your story out to the world. And there was a transference of energy that happened. And what I found is there was probably six or seven of them where their anxieties at the end of their life were literally transferred into my body and I didn't know. Mm. And so I've had to literally disentangle that energy from my body. And it sounds kind of woo-woo and hippie and like new age spiritual, but I'd never remembered having any health anxiety 10 years ago before I started doing some of this work. And that's just an example of something that caused me a lot of misery that was sucking my joy. Like that, if you think about health anxiety, it sucks your joy, mm. right? Sure. And, and there's all kinds of different anxiety. And so I had, to, I had to go into that. And for me, what that looks like is stopping. It looks like breathing. It looks like going into what that feeling is and then literally processing it and crying or sobbing or yelling. And sometimes it's not even mine. I realized that I was so empathetic growing up that I shut myself off from the world because it was too much. And I have been... I, this is why sometimes where I can't watch the news or I can't go on Twitter and I don't understand why. It's because it's, for me, it's too much for my body. And that energy lives in my body. And then when I just try to pretend like I'm okay, it doesn't work. There's, a, there's, a, there's an anxiety that has to get released. I'll pull a muscle because we, the body keeps the score. So at times being my best friend, it might be hard because there are days where I don't want to get out of bed. There are days where I'm like, why am I doing this? There are days when it does feel like it's too much mm. and then the cloudiness goes away and I can see and I can feel. And now for the first time in my life, I can feel my body. I look in the mirror and I don't have the same body dysmorphia that I've had for 37 years because I'm every day actively finding something that I love about myself, about my body. I'm actively working on reprogramming my brain and going into my body and allowing it to feel the things that I stopped it from feeling. Because what do we know? When we do what, what Bell Hooks says and we commit an act of soul murder, that, that first act that all of us men commit in a patriarchal society is not violence against women. It is violence against ourselves. When we do that to ourselves, we are cutting ourselves off from our feelings and we are creating stress and pain that lives in our body that eventually will manifest itself in rage and anger, but underneath it is the sadness. It's that darkness that's gotta come out. Mm. So that's a bit of what I've been doing. It looks like, I, you know, I posted a video of me like getting on a table of a guy like working on, on me with energy. Mm -hmm. There's a billion ways to do it. You can do it with breath work. Yeah. You can do the same thing with breath work. You can yeah. do the same thing with prayer and meditation. It doesn't have to cost you thousands of dollars. You don't have to go on retreats. You can, there's way, you can read books and practice. There's all kinds of things, but what it requires is work and commitment and not being afraid what anybody else thinks. And so today at 38 years old, I am more joyful and happier than I've ever been, despite the moments where it seems like, Justin, I want you to find your joy. Because just like a day in Los Angeles or somewhere else where it's cloudy, right behind the cloud is the sun shining bright. 
It's right there. I also think that type A people need so much therapy, but then they can approach therapy in such a type A way where they're trying to heal their perfectionism, but then the healing becomes something you have to be perfect at too, right? Sure. And then you're like, I'm failing at feeling mm-hmm. better. And and I good have point. to, you know, I, I know I struggle with that too. And sometimes good I have point. to be like, okay, Liz, we're good. Like yeah. you had like, you know, you went to all these that. meetings or you, right? And to give yourself a break from the, like, are you able to also take a break yeah, from the I healing? Do, <laughs> like, I, no, no, for sure. So I think it's something so a lot something of people that, struggle that's with. That's something that Emily and I talk about a lot is, to not become addicted to the healing, yeah. right? That's it's right. It, it can be very or easy be even in the program, the healing, right? And that inner critic is so important. That's that's something that I'm very aware of, right? Because there are there have been times, even on my healing journey, where I'm like, no, go deeper, go go deeper. No, you got to get it done. And then the body's like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And you have to listen. And so so much of it is intuition and listening to your body. And if your body says it's done, it's not about pushing through. Yeah. And what happens is for people like me, who were former athletes and all of these things, you were told, especially especially boys, that pain is equal to growth, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that's not always the case. Yeah. Sometimes pain is just a signal to stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've had to kind of overcome and learn on my healing journey is like, okay, my voice is telling me to go deeper. My body's saying, you're really tired. You know what, rest. Doing nothing has been the hardest thing for me that I've ever done in my entire life. It's not, it is the, not used to that. I call it an anti-verb. Yeah. Do nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's the opposite of what our society and our system yes. tells us that we should be doing. Yes. Our productivity and our worth in a patriarchal system is tied to our output. And our output is our value. So we are only enough if they think we're enough, if you think that I'm enough, if the audience thinks that I'm enough, if this has enough views, if other men think I'm enough. Mm -hmm. The idea of doing nothing sometimes is exactly what our bodies need. And in the Baha'i faith, Abdu'l-Baha, he always says, rest so that you can serve, sleep so that you can serve. We forget about those things oftentimes. Rest, Mm -hmm. and then you get up and serve. Sleep, we need to sleep. Mm -hmm. So then you can get up and you can do your work and then you can serve. That was great. Oh, man. Walk down memory lane. We've done a lot of episodes. (laughs) We have. And it's sweet to see some of these episodes compiled together Mm -hmm. with uh, different people just talking about their journey with therapy or mental health awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, We go throughout our life and we accumulate just rust Mm -hmm. in our mind and our hearts. And I think when we talk about things, um, it chips away at that rust. You know, it allows us to have an, an open heart again. Yeah. And to embrace and to not be judgmental and to not walk through the world with like blinders on and just like protective, but rather we can be open and receive. Yeah. Um, so I think these episodes we've shown here kind of demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. So it's sweet. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Letting go of the baggage so mm-hmm. that you can make space for more beautiful things in yes, your ma'am. life. Yeah. Any of you who might feel that you need a conversation with another. Uh, even though I hear your point, Liz, <laughs> that there are people that weaponize it, I believe and trust that you who are listening to us, most of you are not ones that would weaponize it, but rather could benefit mm-hmm. and your families and in whatever way you feel that therapy. If it's a cold plunge, then do the cold plunge. But don't just think that you can get through this crazy stuff by yourself. When we keep it bottled up, it comes out. Eventually, it finds its way out. Oh, yeah. And most of in the time, worst it ways. finds its way mm-hmm. in worst ways mm-hmm. than it would have been had we just found little... Um, opportunities to release it you know yeah um, like poke little holes in yourself so it's like you release some air yeah otherwise it holds in and you blow up and then 
blow up is yes. just always not good. And ca- and I think the whole weaponizing therapy is is more of that. It's more of keeping things in, sure. right? And and it comes off very you know weapon or weaponizing therapy. But yeah, we've all done it. We've all even if you're you know, recognizing some of your behaviors or recognizing yourself in, in, in some of these conversation, like that's okay too. Yeah. Right. And, and that's growth as, as, as well. And it doesn't mean that you did it on purpose. It doesn't mean that you're bad. Um, but that, 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 that there's not a letting go when yeah. you're using it and intellectualizing yeah. some of your learnings. Um, yeah, I, I take such, I want to say I take issue cause I don't want to be too judgmental as we're saying, not be to not be judgmental. <laughs> But there are so many good things that we find fault in all yeah. the time. We are a people that even when there's a good thing, we have to find the loopholes. Yes. To find what's wrong with it versus when someone has 10 qualities, look at the nine and forget the one bad. I think when we are able to see things that offer us light and not see the little darkness that could be behind it, yeah. um, I think it's really good that we can see things for what they are. And mental health is real. Yeah. And if you do that for yourself, you're going to do it for other people's, right? For, for other people. If you only, if you're mostly focused on your own darkness or your own, right, uh, flaws, that's what you're going to end up, you know, doing with, with other people. Yeah. And so it does also start with you and being more mm-hmm. compassionate and kind. Um, and, and yeah, that it's okay not to be perfect because, and the other person won't be. Sure. I promise. As long as we're striving <laughs> to ever to just keep striving, striving, striving. Yeah. Uh, all right. With that, um, we're going to see you next time. Yes. Until then. You, you can find us. Where can they find us? www.manenough.com slash podcasts on Spotify, on iTunes, right? That's a thing. Yeah. Yes. Where Everywhere you, you get your podcasts. It's cool free. It's and watch it on there. YouTube. You can see yes. how wonderful Liz looks all the time mm-hmm. and your your facial expressions and I mean, your and hand yours. gestures. And, and um, you know, we became a sound on TikTok. Who did? You and I. Really? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I've, I've made it now. All right. Well, until then, until we see you next time, follow us if you'd like and you liked what you heard. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Uh, I'm Jamie Heath. I'm Liz Plank. And this is Man Enough. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13, an Odyssey company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Maholtra Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Anna Southfeld from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kayla Nicholson is our producer. Ashmi Elizabeth Dang is head of marketing. And Susie Landers O'Connell is our lead editor. Thanks for listening.